right. Well, it's so good to be here with you this morning. I don't know. Did you enjoy the snow? Anybody enjoy the snow? Anybody, anybody can't stand the snow? Eh? Anybody ready for spring? All right. Well, it's going to feel like spring next week. So, uh, so you're in luck. It's going to be rainy and uh, it's going to be in the 60s next week. So crazy times, crazy weather. All right, well, uh, this morning we're wrapping up our series, Ancient Life Hacks, that we've been going through. And honestly, I don't really know what to call this series. It's It wasn't really a journey through the book of Proverbs, uh, and nor was it really an overview of the book of Proverbs. Although, if you were here for the second week, Ruth did a fantastic job of overviewing the book of Proverbs. But it was more, I think, like an invitation uh, to dive deeply into the book of Proverbs, to read it more closely, maybe even critically, in search of wisdom from God for our lives, for our journey, for every part of our lives. Proverbs speaks to that. Now, I hope you've been inspired uh, to dive deeply into this book, to read it more closely, to spend some time with it uh, during the week, and, and seeing how these ancient words might be uh, relevant to your own life and the spiritual journey that you are on. Now, this morning, we're actually looking at the last two chapters in the book of Proverbs. And these chapters actually, to me, feel like they were just kind of haphazardly stuck here at the end of this book because they don't really fit well with what came uh, before them. And they don't really uh, have much in common with one another. In fact, there's only really, as far as I can tell, and maybe there's some other stuff, but as far as I can tell, there's only one kind of small, rather insignificant feature that these two chapters, chapter 30 and chapter 31 in Proverbs, have in common, and that's that they were written um, by uh, seemingly unknown, unpopular uh, uh, authors, and, and they're not, they're, they're uh, unco- yeah, having comments, they're attributed to authors that we know almost nothing about. In fact, chapter 30 was attributed to a guy named Agur. Um, and he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And uh, chapter 31 attributed to this guy named Lemuel, and he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And I don't think they're mentioned in extra biblical literature either. Uh, and so there's these unknown kind of uh, uh, kind of random, it feels like, guys that wrote uh, these two chapters. And they're stuck here at the end of the Proverbs and have little in common with one another. They're actually kind of weird uh, chapters if you read through them. And I find it fascinating, though, that the book of uh, Proverbs, the wisdom book of the Bible, closes with these relatively unknown people. And then there's this poem at the end, if you're familiar with Proverbs 31, there's this poem in the end that's not attributed to anyone. So here you got these two guys that nobody knows about in this poem that no one knows who it wrote. And it's here at the end of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Now I may be making too much of this, um, but the inclusion of these two unknown people and this random piece of poetry reminds me that wisdom from God for life comes from places where we least expect to find it. And I think these two chapters, and particularly chapter 30, remind us that people have worth, all people have worth and dignity, not because of what they've done, right? Not because of the degrees they have, not because of their position or the power they have, not because of their education or accolades, but simply because they're loved and included by God. All people have worth and dignity and God uses, right? He has a a, a practice of doing that. God uses the most unlikely people from the most unexpected places. And that's what I think about when I get into this book. And I want you to keep that in mind as we get into Proverbs chapter 30, because Agur, the author of chapter 30, uh, is not very inspiring. 
In fact, he's not at all interested in impressing us uh, with what he's done or what he's accomplished in life. In fact, it seems like quite the opposite. I mean, if you just look at the way this book begins, look at uh, uh, chapter 30, verse 1. It says, the sayings of Agur, son of Jaca, an inspire utterance. This man's utterance to Ithiel, I am weary, God, but I can prevail. So here he is. He introduces himself in this first chapter of his writings as I am weary. Some think this is a weary and some have assumed that this is an older man nearing the end of his life. And and then look at what he says in verse two. He says, surely I am only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. Now, the New Living Translation of the Bible that tends to put things a little bit um, in plainer language for us puts it this way. It says, I am too stupid to be human. I lack common sense. And in the New American Standard Version of the Bible, uh, which um, you may be familiar with, it's, it's typically thought of as the most literal translation of the Bible, but it doesn't soften the language here at all. He says, I am certainly stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. And so it seems like Agur has learned, uh, the only thing that Agur has learned in life is how little he actually knows. And so naturally, my question is, like, why should we listen to him? Why should we even read this chapter of Proverbs when by his own estimation, he is more stupid than any other man? Now, it's not immediately clear what to make of the way Agur starts this chapter. And it doesn't really get much better in the next verse either. Agur seems determined to convince us uh, of his shortcomings. Uh, Look at how he continues to ramble on in verse three. He says, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained the knowledge of the Holy One. Or in the NLT, he says, I have not mastered human wisdom, nor do I know the Holy One. Or the NASB, he says, nor have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. It's almost like an anti-resume, right? This is kind of the opposite of what you want to do if you want to be taken seriously. This is not what you want on your biography, at least I don't think. But um, speaking of speaking of bios, I was at an event the other day. I don't know, have you ever been at one of those uh, um, events where um, maybe they have a website or a flyer or something, and, and the speaker has like this long bio and this glamour shot photo, and like you come there really expecting something, and you get there, and the speaker comes up on the stage, and looks nothing like the picture, and, and has little of something to say. Uh, and I think maybe uh, maybe uh, Ager is trying to keep this from happening. You know what they say? Like what do they say? Uh, under promise, over deliver. Maybe, maybe that's what he's going for here um, because he sets the bar uh, pretty low. In fact, I think that if you're disappointed by what he has to say in the rest of this chapter, that's your fault, not his, because he already told you, right? He's more stupid than any other man. All right. So now, now, um, now maybe Ager is being a bit dramatic, uh, using some hyperbole. Um, But I think the point that he's trying to make still stands. Um, We all know much less than we think we know, right? I think that's kind of what he's getting at, right? That we all know much less than we think we know. And in fact, the longer we live, the more aware we become of how little we actually know, whether we admit it or not, right? Whether we are willing to admit that or not, we, we all at some point become more aware of how little we know about the way life works. And that's the point I was actually trying to get at the first week of this series. Remember that? 
or, or or was that like so last year, right? That was December 31st. And uh, the first week of this series, I said something like at some point, we all must face the fact uh, that there are limitations to how much we can know, right? We can only read so many books, listen to so many lectures and podcasts, consume so much content, do so much research. And although human knowledge is growing at a rapid speed, there will always be more to lo- learn no matter how much we know, there will always be something we just don't understand. There will always be an element of mystery to life. Now, personally, I think Agar is overwhelmed and even humbled by the recognition that there's more mystery to life than he realized. And I think he's starting to see that the gulf between his knowledge and the knowledge and wisdom of God is, is so vast that he's utterly unable to find a firm foundation from which he can assert his own intellectual intelligence. And he's humbled in this state. And Agar becomes open to receiving wisdom from God. That's a good place to be. This place where we realize how little we know, and then we open ourselves to wisdom from one that is greater than we are. And I believe that Agar believed that all wisdom could be found in God. Because if you look at the next verse, in verse four, look at what he says. This is kind of a series of questions that he asks. He says, who has gone up to the heavens and come down? Who, whose, hand, whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the water in a cloak? Who has established the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son? Surely you know, he asked. Of course, the answer he's looking for is God, because this is a rhetorical question, I believe. And this verse is very similar, though, to some of the other passages um, in the Old Testament. There's a couple of others uh, that engage in a similar line of questioning. And these questions are actually intended to help us see the limited nature of our own knowledge and the limitless knowledge of God. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, Isaiah engages in a similar line of questioning. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands or with the breath of his hands marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountain on the scales and the heals in a balance who can fathom the spirit of the lord or struck the lord as his counselor whom did the lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding now of course the answer here is god that's what isaiah is getting at and and but god didn't like God didn't literally measure the waters in the hollow of his hands rather isaiah is attempting to express the greatness of God with poetic language. This rhetorical line of questioning is intended to leave the reader speechless in awe of the comprehensive wisdom and the greatness of God. And this is what Proverbs calls the fear of God, right? It's to leave us in this space of fear of God, recognizing how great God is, how comprehensive God's knowledge is. And I think these passages invite us to slow down and consider how we ought to relate to a God who is full, who is full of wisdom 
and understanding. A God who created the world and is master of it. A God who is powerful and independent, yet full of love. And is deeply concerned with our daily lives. How should we relate to that God? I think that's what Agar is getting. I think that's what Isaiah is getting. And I think that's what scripture is trying to draw us into. And this idea of God being great and worthy of our humble submission to him. Now for Agar, this recognition of who God is deepens his dependence on God and moves him to trust every word of wisdom from God. Look at what he says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse five. He says, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Now this phrase, word of God, I thought about it a good bit this week. This phrase, word of God, I think, has taken on a life of itself uh, in the minds of theologians who have systematized scripture and created categories uh, to oversimplify, to simplify, maybe sometimes oversimplify our understanding of the Bible. As a result, many people, every time they see this phrase, word of God, interpret it to mean the Bible. And subsequently, they use passages like this one, which says, every word of God is flawless to assert the infallibility, the errorlessness of the Bible. Um, but I don't think that's what Agar's at, getting, at after, getting, getting after here. Uh, Agar is not forming a doctrine of scripture. Rather, I think he's telling us about a decision he's made to depend on wisdom from God. You see, Agar is telling us his story, um, not stating an objective truth. He's telling us what he has learned. He's telling us about what he has experienced in his life to be true. And that is that the word of God, however it comes to him, is trustworthy. That's what Agar's experienced. And I think sometimes we turn to our own experiences and we ask, how have we experienced God? And we can make sense and grapple with that very question. Agar thinks, Agar says that the word of God can be trusted. Now, now Agar may have opened this chapter in a way that's, self-deprecating. <laughs> um, but I believe that as we progress into it, this chapter, and then we get into verse seven, that he totally redeems himself um, by displaying profound wisdom in how he prays to God. And this is actually the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. And it's particularly, or what's particularly striking about this prayer is Agar's recognition that his faith uh, will be affected by the psycho, uh, sociological circumstances of his life. And listen to what he says in this prayer. I, I love this. It's actually one of, my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, he says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. You see, Agar's recognizing that a spiritual connection with God is more valuable than wealth. So much so that he prays to God, God don't make me rich. Now, 
I'll be honest, I've not prayed that prayer yet. Um, but I believe what Agar says here is true, especially in our modern world where we have so many options and access to so many kinds of material goods. I mean, we got Amazon. I was just looking this morning on Amazon. I mean, I, I can order something right now and get it today at my door when I get home. It may even be there between two and six. There's a window. It's crazy. We have access to so much. It feels nearly impossible in this world to define enough. Even when we have everything we need, our consumer culture causes us to worry that we don't actually have enough and that we don't and that we need more stuff and daily right we're bombarded with all these advertisements and messages they know what we need before we know that we need them there's this billion dollar industry that's convinced to uh that's determined to convince us that we need things that we do not have and that we actually they want to convince us that we need more of the things that we already have it's kind of crazy and in our context the words of agar are more important than ever because I think he's drawing our attention to what many people have experienced, and that is more stuff in our lives often leaves less space for a spiritual connection with God. But notice, just in case you're ready to tune this out, that Agar is not promoting the opposite. He's not promoting asceticism either. <laughs> he's not encouraging us to take a vow of poverty, although if that's your calling, I'll support you. I'll pray for you. But he's not calling us to take a vow of poverty and reject all material goods. Um, rather, he's making an observation that having enough, what he calls my daily bread, having enough is generally an optimal position for a meaningful relationship with God. However, that's defined. But having enough is generally an optimal position for a meaningful relationship with God. Now, Jesus says something similar to Agar in the prayer he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He says, this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Notice Agar says, give me only my daily bread. And Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what's enough. Hmm. Now, none of us will ever know precisely why this chapter from Agar is included in the book of Proverbs. But I think these verses, verses 7 to 9, are some of the most profound verses in the whole book. And the kind of maturity and wisdom it takes to pray this prayer is quite astounding. It's worth sitting with. Now, Agar says some other stuff in the rest of the book. It's kind of like he, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but it's kind of like he reaches his pinnacle and then it's all downhill from there. Not, that's, not, that's not totally true. You just got to sit with some of his, right? He's almost, he's a little philosophical, I think. You know, Agar says some other stuff. In fact, the rest of the book is there's these strange, like, numerical proverbs that almost feel like riddles. And it's not entirely clear what he's getting at with these. Um, it sounds like he's saying that there's wisdom to be found from the world around us if we just live with our eyes open and slow down enough to observe the world around us. Listen to one of these um, 
one of these numerical proverbs that he has in, in verse 24. He says, four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyraxes, I don't even know what that is. I, I did Google them. Actually, I do know what they are. I Googled them. They're very cute. Um, but I don't know that they exist around here. Her Her I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Hyraxes uh, are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king. Yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught in the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. You see what I mean? I mean, these are like riddles uh, from Agar. They're fun to read, but I think you really just got to sit with them for a little while to get what, what's going on and what he's trying to say here. And, uh, and we really don't have time to sit with them for a little while because we got to move on to Proverbs chapter 31, or we're going to be here all day. So Proverbs chapter 1. The last chapter in the book of Proverbs. And the first section in this chapter is called the sayings of King Lemuel. But Lemuel is really only the writer of these sayings. The words of wisdom actually come from his mother. Look at how the chapter starts. The sayings of King Lemuel and inspired utterance his mother taught him. And I love the way Lemuel's mother begins in the next verse. Look at what she says in verse two. Listen, my son. Listen, son of my womb. Listen, my son. The answer to my prayers. You know, she calls him son three different times, right? She's making sure that he recognizes. It may, it's like, you may be king, but you are still my son. You are still my boy. And not only does she call him son, but she goes, she says, son of my womb. I'm like, it's like, don't forget where you came from. It's like, Anger's probably like, come on, mom, really? You're going to go there? I, like, if I was writing this, I would have edited that part out. Even if my mom said it, I would have edited it out. But Lemuel leaves it in. And, uh, and he says, he's okay with his mom calling him son. He's like, eh, I guess that's where I came from. Um, uh, notice, notice though, that his mom also calls him an answer to her prayers. Hmm. This is a mom that loves her son and is deeply concerned about his well-being and success. And she wants him to stay on the right path. And so she offers him words of wisdom. Now, first, she tells him that not everybody's going to have his best interest in mind. In fact, some people are just up for a good time. And it is up to him to set boundaries, particularly when it comes to women. Now, that's my paraphrase, but you can see what she actually says in, in verse three. She says, do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. Now, that's mom stating it bluntly. That's like when, you're, when mom sits you down and she's just like, let's have a conversation, son. Right? That's mom stating it bluntly. Then she, she warned, Then she warns Lemuel about consuming too much alcohol. And, uh, and she's not so much concerned with the act of drinking. Rather, she's more concerned with the effect of it. She wants to make sure that Lemuel preserves his decision-making ability and he keeps that intact because she really wants her son to use his position and his power to make a positive difference in the world. Listen to what she says. It's not for kings, Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, for rulers to crave beer. Least they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. You see, Lemuel's mom is concerned with justice. 
She wants to ensure that her son doesn't contribute to the oppression of people. And she knows that doing the right thing in this world is going to require us to have a sober mind. And then finally, she gets right at it, what she's getting, I think, in this whole time. And she encourages him to use his voice, his power, his influence to do good in this world. Look at what she says in verse 8. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so here we have this king who has, I'm sure, maybe I'm making a little bit of an assumption here, but has the best and brightest advisors around him. He probably has a library of leadership books. But the book of Proverbs does not contain the wisdom he gained from those books, but the wisdom that Lemuel gained from his mom. Because wisdom, even divine wisdom, comes from unexpected and sometimes overlooked places. I think Proverbs is reminding us to slow down and to pay attention, to live mindfully with eyes open, with minds open, hearts open to those around us. Now, Proverbs 31 closes with this beautiful poem called The Wife of Noble Character. Now, we've talked about this before, uh, but these headings are not original to the text. Rather, they were added um, by translators and editors to organize the text into thematic sections. And I think there has to be a better heading than the wife of noble character. Now, if you grew up going to church or you've been around the church for a while, you've probably, you're probably at least somewhat familiar uh, with this passage. And there's a good chance that you heard a male pastor stand before a congregation and either intentionally or unintentionally use it to reinforce patriarchal notions and ideas about the role of women in society. That's often how this passage has been used. And there's a ton that could be said about these verses, but because we only have a little time left, I'm gonna to try to hone in on two things. First, I'm gonna look at this passage and how this passage uh, could be understood as a piece of literature. But then second, I want us to briefly look at how to apply it, how to apply this text to our lives. Now, if you've always disliked this passage, as uh, I'm sure some have, or felt uh, uh, pressure to like live up to a standard. It feels impossible when you read this passage. Hang in there with me, um, because um, we're going to try not to do that this morning. Uh, and if you're uh, a guy in the room and you always tuned out this passage, um, you hang in there with me as well. So let's first talk about this passage as a piece of piece of literature. Now. Um, I think if we could read Proverbs 31, verse 10 through 30, Proverbs 31, verse 10 through 31, in the original language, we see that this poem was written as an acrostic. And that means that the first word of um, each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 verses in, in this section. This poem is also... Um, or at least it also has a chiastic, what they call a chiastic structure, uh, which means uh, that the themes 
kind of mirror themselves. They kind of work their way to a center point. I think we have a picture of that. Uh, they work their way to a center point and then they kind of mirror themselves as they work their way out from that center point. Now, if I'm being honest, I've always struggled to see chiasms in the biblical text. So we're not really gonna look very closely at this. And so I'm, I'm really just trusting the scholars on this one because they see these things a lot better uh, than I do. Now, I think my struggle to see uh, these chiasms, uh, these literary devices results from how we've been conditioned in modern society. You see in the ancient world, people didn't have access to books and information, the internet. They couldn't just look stuff up. They couldn't just pull the Bible out of their pocket on their phones and just look it up. And so memorization was much more important. And literary devices like acrostics and chiasms were, uh, were, were used to help people remember the text, to carry it with them, to have it not in their pocket, but in their heart uh, in a way that was memorable. And the Christian world, though, is filled with content on how to apply verses like this. Now, much of it centers around helping women become Proverbs 31 women. In fact, this passage is often treated like a job description for women or an example that all, all women should strive to emulate. Um, but if you read it honestly, you'll quickly notice that this is an impossible and unreasonable standard for anyone to try to live up to. Listen to what this passage says, at least this passage that's uh, called the so-called wife of noble character, terrible title. All right, all right, listen to what it says. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands eager hands. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night and provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. And all in her hand, and she holds the distaff. I think that's like a spool of like wool, if you're wondering where that is. I kind of Googled it. Um, I was like, I don't, I've never heard that word. Uh, she, she holds a distaff and grasps the spindle in her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, <laughs> she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. I expected to see a bunch of scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. And then in verse 27, um, it says, she watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. <laughs> it's like, well, duh, right? <laughs> I don't think she has time to eat actual bread. I mean, definitely not the bread of idleness. <laughs> On the way this passage has been used is interesting. And kind of frustrating to say the least. It's frequently the topic of women's conferences. It's often printed on coffee mugs. Maybe you drink out of one of those in the morning and be reminded of how far you have to go to be the wife of noble character. It's on t-shirts. Countless books have been written about becoming a Proverbs 31 woman. I've heard people say, I gotta get me a Proverbs 31 wife. 
I mean, it's this crazy standard. And I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm giving you permission to go home and cut up that T-shirt that has Proverbs 31 on it if you want. Smash that mug if that's what gives you joy. Um, Because this passage wasn't written to teach you how to be a wife that pleases God or pleases your husband. This verse is not about subjecting women to some impossible standard and making them feel like they could never live up to the godly standards of the wife of noble character. In fact, the late uh, Rachel Held Evans says this, and she was such an incredible theologian. She, um, She once wrote about this passage and she says this. She says, too often we focus on the Proverbs 31 woman's role as a way of reducing womanhood to marriage, motherhood, and domesticity. When really this passage is about character that transcends both gender and circumstance. You know, in fact, uh, most scholars actually agree that this passage was written to young men um, about how to apply wisdom to their lives. And the purpose of this passage had nothing to do with becoming a wife of noble character or finding a wife a noble character. In fact, I think Proverbs 31 is doing what this book has been doing throughout the entire book. It's intended to be an example of how godly wisdom can be translated into everyday practices. This passage is teaching us that there is wisdom from God for life, for every part of our lives. And that's why the wife in Proverbs 31 does so much not to set some kind of standard, but to show the completeness, the holistic nature, the comprehensiveness of God's wisdom, that it's good for every part of our lives, whatever our lives are filled with. It's not telling us what our lives ought to be filled with, but it's showing that God's wisdom is good for whatever our lives are filled with. That wherever we go, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever conversation, whatever circumstance, whatever place we're in, that there's wisdom from God for that space that we find ourselves in. And this passage is an invitation. It's an invitation to all of us in this room. The book of Proverbs is an invitation. It's an invitation to all of us in this room to slow down, to live mindfully, to show up in the present, intentionally seeking wisdom from God for life, wisdom from God, and applying it to our day-to-day, even mundane things that make up our lives. You know, every Sunday morning, we spend a time here at the end of the message, and the band can come on up. Um, We spend time here reflecting and responding um, to the scriptures that we read. And, um, you know, this is something that's fitting at the end of a service, right? Because we've kind of just read some scriptures and heard a message. Um, But it's not just fitting on Sundays when we're in this room, but this idea of reflecting and slowing down and creating space for God to speak is an important practice for our lives. 
That could be during your workday. You may pull away and spend five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes alone, stealing yourself away from the work that needs to get done and the things that are on your plate, the things that you feel pressured and hurried to do. And this may mean simply spending time during the week in scripture, maybe getting up early in the morning and reading, maybe reading before you go to bed, maybe reading at lunchtime and creating space for wisdom, for God to show up in your life and guide you in your every day. I think of our time of communion as a practice for life. We're practicing for our day-to-day when we're not in this space, when we're not in the stillness, when we're not um, unhurried. It's a practice for us to attune ourselves to wisdom from God for life. Now, this morning we have the tables around the room that are prepared with communion, and you may feel led to go to one of these three tables and spend time breaking bread and drinking juice, remembering sacrifice of Jesus and that day that love triumphed over death. And maybe you may be, um, it, it may be meaningful for you to go to the back of the room and spend time in prayer, maybe lighting a candle as you pray for a situation in your life or a person that you know of, or spending time in lament at the station for lament. There's numerous ways that people spend this moment. You can see some of those in the community flyer you received as you came in. But whatever you do in this moment, spend some time practicing, making space in your mind, making space in your heart for wisdom from God, from God for life. Amen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.